The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. This morning, if you have notes with you, we have the notes. What we're going to be doing is we're going to ask this question, what is, what is Christian Reconstruction? Um, we've talked about over the last five weeks, uh, we've talked about the Christian Reformation. We've gone all the way from talking about Martin Luther, his grievances uh, against the Catholic Church and uh, against the fallacies. We've talked about the Apostles' Creed and, the foul, and what, it's to, what, it, what foundation it laid. We talked about the uh, Nicene Creed and the fallacies and the heresies that were, had come that it was answering. And now we've come to this place... Um, after last week of really, although we were we had we had bad weather, so we had flooding here at our house, um, we we were able to kind of get come into this place of of really answering these questions uh, of of the Nicene Creed, but also you know who we are. And it came to this place of who we are as a as a church, and I, I want to say this very often, and we and many of y'all can kind of. Y'all, y'all probably gonna have the same thing, but I even had the question asked this week. Um, I, often I'm, I'm, I get the question, "What denomination are you?" or "What kind of church do you pastor?" And those are things. And I got, I, I got that question this week. Well, the thing is, those are questions that are easy for some, and it, as it was for my part when I was back when I was a Baptist, and I could just say. I was a Baptist, or I was a, or someone could say a Methodist, or some, and they really people might not even know what that means, except they mean what the 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 things they don't do in those in those denominations, but they're so mainstream that they get it. But when you're non-denomination, when you're non-denominational, but you're not non-denominational, meaning what most people think of that, then it becomes more difficult. And I remember uh, we were once in a restaurant, and I always go back to this, when we were in a restaurant, and this man asked what we, what we were, and Henry said, well, we're Christians. And that's an easy definition, and I think we, we can take that upon ourselves, we can take it upon ourselves to understand that, yes, we are Christians, but Christ's covenant church, our church and our gathering at its core, we have some core beliefs and key distinctions and, and, and it's easier for us, instead of saying we are this denomination or we are like this denomination, it's easier for us to say we're Christians and these are some core beliefs that we have. And, and that is what we're, we are. We're Christian Reconstructionists um, in the key meaning, the core meaning of what we believe. And so as today, as we look at this, if you, great, you can go ahead and put it up on that. I mean, just think about this. If, this is some basic things. These are going to be our points today, but we're going we're gonna to go through each one. Go ahead and go to the next page. I mean, this is a basic thing, so we're going to talk about this today, okay? And we can't go into an exhaustive, uh, we can't really go into an exhaustive list and, and go through every point here uh, to perfection, because I mean, to fulfill, uh, to fulfill it all, because it, we would be here forever just on the first point alone. And I'm not saying we won't come back. This is what I said earlier. When we look at the uh, passage of Scripture, we look at the Advent, we look at uh, more that's going on, how it ties into this first point that we'll be looking at. Christian Reconstructionism is Calvinistic, 
It's, Cal it's Calvinism. Holds to Calvinism. And so we'll look at how this applies even to the advent of Christ uh, coming and uh, this next, next Sunday, um, Sunday before what's traditionally observed as Christmas. Um, Christian Reconstructionism holds to Calvinism. And also, if you would go to the, the first little sub-point, what that means is simply this, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything. And that's what we're going to talk about part of this, but not the whole thing. And we're not going to talk about the, full, the, the fullness of it. And this is one, one of the things that people struggle with, is that God is sovereign over everything. It's not that God just knows all things. He is authority over all things. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31, and there's going to be a lot of scripture this morning, but just bear with me. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined in allotted periods of times and periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. But then God, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God is sovereign over all things. That means God has authority over all things. And this passage of scripture just plainly puts it that what did God does? He, every man, Every woman, every child that has come, into has come into existence has come into existence at the exact time in the exact place that God has allotted for it to happen. The nations that have risen up, every one of them, God has allotted in time and space for that to happen. There's nothing that is outside the control of God. In, in Psalm 139, 16, it even says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is sovereign over all things to the point of our very existence, our very birth, and the number of days that you will live. Now, I know some people disagree with this aspect, and that's okay. And I can live with you disagreeing, but I want to come to this place that God numbers our days, that no one, not even man of any sort, can take you out of this life one day prior to what God's intent for your life is going to be. God, especially with his people, 
holds us in his hands. And no one, no one can snatch us out of his hands is what we find in the New Testament. In the book of Job, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, it says, Man who is born of woman is, a, uh, is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he can't pass. Our God numbers the days of every person. And yes, it is sad when we have people, when we have, uh, people who live very short life. I have never met anyone, a family member, who said, you know what? Very few times, unless someone is very old, oh, they, they, lived a long, they lived a full life. Most times I hear this comment, and it's, a very, it's not necessarily a biblical comment. It's not something Christians should say that God took them too quickly. No, nothing happens apart from the will of God, the hand of God, the sovereignty of God, and not one person lives or dies apart from his will. And that's both those who are believers and those who are not. God has ordained the number of their days. God is sovereign over all things. But that brings up a second point this morning, a very simple point, that Calvinism is the gospel. Now, like I said, I'm not going to be able to go into the fullness of this, and that's what I'm going to bring out next week. We're going to talk about why Calvinism is the gospel, what does that have to do with the Advent, and so forth. It's a big stretch for some, but not for me. Calvinism it's, is the gospel. And what that means, simply, if we look at Romans 1, 16-7, the gospel is what? It talks about the power of God. And Paul, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the very power of God. It's the very the uh, very power of God unto salvation. Romans 28 says talks about how we come up, come to that place. How we come to that place of salvation and, and understanding what salvation is. And that's why I said I'm not going to spend as much time here because we're going to talk about this next Sunday. But it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. When God, this is called the golden chain. And when we look at this, when God has predestined those unto salvation, which is the whole hang-up that people will have, when God does this, He does the work. He not only calls you, He saves you, He justifies you, He glorifies you. He does all these aspects in and of Himself. And these are not our own works. But it goes on in verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He also... How, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, so we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. And why I bring this in and I talk about how Calvinism is the gospel, we'll understand how one is saved and we understand that we're completely dependent on God. Not only has he called us, not as God has saved us, he's the one from the intent, has saved all who will be saved. And that's a big statement right now. But let me, for, we'll have to clarify next week. But I want us to understand this. If God is the one who is at work in saving us, okay, y'all listening up? If God is the one who has done all the acts and all the work of saving us, we have joy, we have hope and we have um, confidence in the fact that nothing in this life, no one in this life, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. If, if we look at our salvation in light of what we have done or what we're capable of doing, and we saved ourselves, or we chose Jesus or anything, the thing is, is our decisions change, our opinions change, our abilities change. And, if, and the thing is, is if we can save ourselves, we can lose our salvation. But if God saves us in Christ Jesus, and it's his work, and it's his sovereign, perfect work and will, what happens? There's nothing that can snatch us out of his hands. There's nothing that can remove that salvation from us. Neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor any governing authorities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's a powerful thing just to begin this statement from. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are told that for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing. It is what? It's the gift of God. And as we talked about last week and we've talked about previously, if it's gift of God and God has given us that thing, no one can rescind that or take that gift back. God has given it to you. It's not a result of works or your abilities, so you have nothing to boast in except Christ Jesus. I remember writing a... Uh, I'm going to have to read this. I'll put it up on the screen uh, on the screen for us. Just a second, though. Um, I wrote this back in December of 2014. And I don't quote myself because I think I'm an awesome guy to quote or anything like that. I just, I'm just i going to quote something I wrote because it's something I thought of because I was having to deal with people who, uh, who were denying, um, denying a Calvinist the, uh, doctrine. And so they were struggling with it. And I wanted us to think through it as a church and think through it as, as family members that were going through this and others that I, I was having conversations. Let me, let me read this to you. It actually was December 4th, so it came up as a Facebook memory. And I, I thank God for it for this sermon alone. It says, Why is it that people have trouble with God's determinism regarding salvation? Isn't he acting consistently with his character and his nature? 
Just think, although God operates outside of time and space, he out of, infinity, uh, out of infinity or eternity past determined when all of creation would come to be. I don't know of any Christian that questions his determinism there. God foretold about 750 years prior to the coming of Christ in the book of Isaiah, but it was God who determined the coming of Christ and when according to prophecy. No Christian I know questions the determinism of God in this. Acts 17.26, which we read just a little while ago, said, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God determines this, and nobody questions his choice, asking, Why didn't God make me be born during the, during the time of the Black Plague? Or why wasn't I born during the Great Depression? Or why wasn't, why wasn't I born during the time when polio was rampant in our country? Or why wasn't I born when a black man in the South in the early to mid-1900s? Or why not even a slave? I've never heard any self-proclaimed Christian question God's determinism in any of these matters then why do we question, or why do you question God's determinism when it comes to salvation? When you question God's choice, predestination, or election, aren't you being inconsistent? Aren't you saying that God might have determined your present, but you will determine your future? Is that not a work salvation by the hand of man? Do you believe that God was just in the former cases, but in regards to determinism and salvation, he's unjust in doing so? Are you not judging God? Are you saying that in everything else in all of creation that God was all-knowing, always present, and active, and all-powerful, yet when it comes to salvation, God is hit or miss and at a loss without the individual accepting him? Come on, really, how can you pick and choose when to hold to the sovereignty of God? Aren't you schizophrenic or double-minded in your thinking? You must, and I'm going to stop there because I don't think I need to even go further. But understand this. If we can look at it and say, you know what? Thank God I was not born a black man in the South in the, in during, the, during the Civil War. Or thank God that I wasn't born in the time of the Black Plague or polio. Or I wasn't done all these type of things. Thank God. We can understand and thank God for those things. But when it comes down to salvation, we say, you know what? God doesn't have a part in this except that he sent Jesus. It's the rest of us accepting him. Folks, Calvinism is a gospel, and Calvinism is part of Christian Reconstructionism because it shows the sovereignty of God in all areas of life. Secondly, Christian Reconstructionism holds to a covenantal theology. That's right. It holds to a covenantal theology, and that what that means is, if you go ahead and put up the next little part so we can have it to write it down, Grace, it says, redemptive history is covenantal by nature. That's why Christian Reconstructionism holds to a covenantal theology, because redemptive history, how one is saved, is, under throughout history, is, a, is covenantal by nature. Ultimately, the God of the Old Covenant is the God of the New Covenant. And God has always had one people, and God's people are a people of covenant. Not them with him, but him with them. See, the thing is, is when we talk about covenant, we need to understand that covenant with God 
is not determined by man. It's not like me going and making a contract with God because the thing is, is any contract we make with God or any attempt to make covenant with God in and of ourselves, we're fallible, we're sinful. We will fall short of the glory of God. We will fall short of, of, of our, and we won't be able to keep our commitment. I mean, even God in the, in the garden made a simple command to Adam and Eve. And what did he say? He told them, he gave them a purpose. He gave them the, a dominion mandate to go and have dominion all over the, all the beasts of the earth and all these things. He told them to tend to the garden. And what else? He just told them, don't eat from this one tree. And they walked with God and they talked with God, all those type of things. And then what did they do? They gave one little, one moment in history, Satan comes in, the serpent comes in and deceives them. And says, you know, tells, and what do they do? They deny him. So the covenant is never, is never instituted by man with God. God made that covenant with them, and God, in 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 His mercy, in His mercy, didn't destroy them right there. But said, the seed of the womb of uh, of Eve would save all mankind, would crush the serpent's head. And so we come to this place, uh, understanding that covenant is made by God with man. And it's covenantal in nature because God has a people, and it's with his people. It's not with those who are pagans. It's not just with people who are out there doing something else and worshiping other gods. It's with his people. John 10 in the New Testament, verse 16 says, I, Jesus was saying, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That means that, that, that at some point in time, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, and we, we understand that God has called men, uh, has called mankind, men and women, from both, for what? To make one flock. Jeremiah 31 talked about a new covenant that was coming. And it says, uh, it talks about in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand of bringing them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And we find that this, this prophecy is reiterated and revealed and as fulfilled in Hebrews 8. And Christ Jesus as a better high priest and a better sacrifice uh, that initiates a better covenant by his own blood. Redemptive history is always covenantal because it's a covenant with God. It's, it's a promise of God. And one of the things we can look at is it, it, it's always covenantal by nature. It's always what God is promising, what he's going to do. And God always fulfills that promise and, and in doing so. Um, in doing so, we also look at Hebrews 8, verse 13. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's why when I've looked at, when I've seen on social media that the uh, the Jews over in Israel have built an altar and have begun offering sacrifices on this altar, and, and Christians in this country are rising up and rejoicing that a third temple is being built that means the coming of the Lord is coming. Hogwash. What it means is pagans are over there offering sacrifices to a God that is not the God of the Bible. 
He's a God or a figment of their imagination. He's not the God of the Bible. I called this out. I said, this is the worst thing that we could be. We shouldn't even be advertising this. We should be calling down that we should be, we should be against this form of paganism. Because these Jews are not the Israel of the Bible. These Jews that are over there are not God's people. They are worshiping a God of their own imagination. A God that what? He ended the ceremonial sacrifice of animals. The blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus alone covered their sin. The blood of Jesus has finally paid the price. They don't need a high priest to go into the Holy of Holies anymore because God's not there. They don't need a sacrifice of atonement for their sin year after year. Jesus fulfilled it all. And what we find is Christians, American Christians, who are fancifully just excited about what that this temple is going to be built. So what? So the Jews can burn in hell and they can go to heaven as soon as possible. That's not the goal of the gospel, I can tell you that. And that's not the goal of a redemptive, uh, the redemptive uh, plan of God. In doing so, Christ restores of his people one flock, one people. And we find in Ephesians 3, it says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's no longer two salvation, two people. There's no two peoples of God. There's no two salvation plans. There's not because you are the house of Israel and then you follow Christ, you both get saved. No, there is one way in Christ Jesus. And what did he say? What even Jesus himself? We don't even have it here on the script. Uh, the scripture on the screen. What does it say? John. Jesus said in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father except through me." That means there's no Jew, no Gentile, no former pagan comes to God except through Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3, we're reminded that as for many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all and one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So Christian Reconstructionism holds to a covenantal theology. And his redemptive, redemptive history is covenantal by nature. Thirdly, Christian Reconstructionism holds to post-millennialism. Now, there are some Christian Reconstructionists out there that will claim to be amillennial. And I don't want to even talk about what amillennialism is right now. Um, but... And there are some that would be historic premillennialists. But let me say what Christian Reconstructionism from its core, from what we've talked about, has had. And what it is, is it 
is, is a very simple aspect of postmillennialism. This means we have an eschatology of hope and victory. We have an eschatology of hope and victory. All right, what does eschatology mean? It's the study of what? Y'all remember? End times or last days, right? So of last things, if you want to even put it more, even more simply. We as Re Christian Reconstructionism have an eschatology of hope and victory. Some would even use the word optimism. That's what ticks all the other isms off because you say, I have optimism, y'all are pessimists. Okay? So, but here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, verses 18 and 19, Jesus told Peter, he said, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now think about that. We've talked about this quite a bit, haven't we? We've, we've talked about the scripture quite a bit. This, this, this passage of scripture is a scripture of victory. This passage of scripture is not one of defeat. It says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now, we're not talking about the church as being the last outpost, as Gary North had put, had put in his book, Unconditional Surrender. We're not, a, we're not in a last outpost. What are we? We're the army of the living God. The, gate, the, the hinges of the gates that we're talking about, the gates shall not prevail, the, hell, the gates of hell shall not prevail, uh, what that means is we are storming the gates of hell. They shall not hold us back. That's the difference of, of how look at So when we have certain certain opinions or certain philosophies of how of end times, what most people think is we're doomed before we get to celebrate with Jesus. But rather it's the opposite in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a eschatology of hope and victory is we're storming the gates of hell in victory to win as many of those who are on the opposite of uh, on the side of the enemy over to the Lord to do our part and calling men to repentance that they might come. And we look at, if you look at all of Matthew chapter 13, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you the parable of, of the, the, the multiple parables here talk about, and, I, and I'm just going to leave this, talk about the expansion of the kingdom. It talks about sowing the seed, the good seed, and when it falls on, that, on the soil, if we find at the end of that, it, 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 it bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. When we talk about the, the, the parable of sowing seed as we go out, the message is that the, so, the seed will fall on good soil. And when it falls on good soil, the harvest will be greater and will multiply greatly in comparison to that which falls on the path, that falls on the rocky places, that, and so forth. And they get snatched up. Okay? There's a parable also in that time of the parable before him. It's another. It's compared to a man who sowed uh, sowed good seed and bad seed. And what happens is they they gather at the end of things. We find that there's a, the parable telling us that, that at the end of all things, at the end of all things, the harvest, the wheat will be gathered with the with the weeds, and they'll be separated, and the weeds will be burned. And one of the things is is we so often people look at look at the times, and they try to look at the times and foretell what's going on here and what's uh what's happening and they'll look at oh well we're we have wars and rumors of wars well you know what there's a part of that there are wars and there might be rumors of wars to come but the thing is is we have less warring now 
than there has been in the past. And even if you want to look at it, if we have wars and so forth, if we take the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for the salvation of every man, and we bring it into conflict with these warring people, what happens is, is we bring peace, the peace of the gospel into those places. And so what happens, and we look at look at it from our the philosophy, or if you want to say, or the of what we hold to, the eschatology of hope and victory is that over time, there'll be more peace and more peace, less war and less war, more victory for King Jesus, more victory for King Jesus, more victory. But what we do is we look at it as it's just a time. We look at it as we look at it and think that our lifetime is the our life and what we see in our experiences is the crux of, of the Christian life, but it's not. It's just a it's just a vapor. You can also look at the, the parable in verse 31 of, of chapter Matthew 13, and it goes on to say, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. It's a small seed, but when it's fully grown, that the birds of the air, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and make its nests in their branches. It might start off very small. The kingdom of God might seem very small, but it will grow. Not just in time and space and not just in history. A lot of people will come and people will die. But we're talking about the kingdom of God will grow. Talked about the kingdom of heaven is like, in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. The thing is, is it will work its way through and it will grow. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, men will what? They'll give their entire lives over for this treasure that they might have it in Christ Jesus. Verse 45, it's like the merchant, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and when he finds it, he what? He buys it because it, it has great price. When men, when the men of God and women of God look at what Christ has done in and through them and for them, and they see the value of it, what it says is when we will sacrifice everything for the cause and purpose of Christ and the calling he's laid upon our lives, we will see the advancement of the kingdom. We will see great things. And that's why it goes into, uh, continues on and, and throughout it. But I want us to look at this. Christian Reconstruction holds to post-millennialism, which is a, an eschatology of hope and victory. Fourthly, Christian Reconstructionism holds to presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism, another big word, I know. The word presuppositional is a big word, but let's look at it a little bit more. And also, we'll look at these two parts. Um... What this means is we have a defense of a comprehensive worldview. We have a defense of a comprehensive worldview. When we look at presupposition means I hold these things. I suppose these things when I come into it. So what did you expect when you came, uh, since we have church in, in my home, what did you expect for those who, y'all who came, did you, what did you expect when you came to the house today? You presupposed what? That we're going to come and we're going to we're going to come and have a time of, of fellowship together. You suppose that we're going to sing songs. You suppose we're going to have uh, that that I'm going to uh, preach or teach. You we're going to take communion together. We're going to have 
How many of you are expecting supper or to eat lunch in a little bit? You hungry yet? I'm I'm expecting to eat something, right? I, I saw some pecan pies over on that table over there. I, I I'm presupposing that that Shelly made those pies so that we can eat them and not just look at them, right? We have these are presuppositions based that we have core things, and in the church we presuppose certain aspects. As Christians and Christian Reconstructionists, we presuppose certain things. And one of those things with this is we have a defense of a comprehensive worldview. What that means is we have to give a defense for our worldview. And in doing so, we do it in a certain way. 1 Peter uh, 3 verses 15 through 17 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And I want us to see that because of this. We have to be ready to give a defense of our comprehensive worldview. Well, what does comprehensive mean? It means... And overarching, it's a big thing. How many of ever here know who how many in here have memorized the whole Bible? I'm a raise I'm a blow my hand too. None of us have memorized the whole Bible. Do we know do we know everything about ever there is to know about the about scripture? Do you think we've we've all learned everything there is? No, we're always learning. But having a comprehensive worldview has to do with something, we know that we're going to give a defense of our worldview based upon what we're about to see next, okay? The basis of our worldview, B, under that, is that God is real and His Word is true. This is the basis of our presupposition, that God is real and His Word is true. Because His Word tells us. That's the basis of our worldview. And so often people will people will say, well, we have, I, I want evidence that God is, exists. And God has given, we're going to see that in just a moment, God has given all the evidence people need. But what people need is not evidence. What people need is submission, needs the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What people need is, and honestly, when someone tells me that they want show me if God is real, I want Him to speak right now. A couple, about about a month or so ago, uh, I went and saw Joe McDermott do a debate with a uh, with a, a man um, in Houston. And one of the things that that the man kept saying, if God is real and He has answers, why don't He just come and speak to us right now? Well, it doesn't matter that the guy kept asking that question. That was not the point of the debate. The debate was. Which brings about a better world, a better life? The God of the Bible or humanism? The basis of our worldview is that God is real. We presuppose this. We, we know these things to be true. God is real and His Word is true. Because that's what the Word of God says. And people might say, though, that's circular reasoning. Okay, what's wrong? according to your worldview, with circular reasoning. According to mine, if God is the answer, there's nothing wrong with it. It's logical. We find in Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
So for us to know anything, we know that we come to the place where we believe that we have to fear and honor God as the beginning place, the starting place for all wisdom and knowledge. Romans 1 tells us in verses 18 through 32, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing because y'all, we've taught, talked about this, but remember those points. I want y'all to look it up. Look through those scriptures throughout the week. Study those things so we know. But it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they don't know. Is that what it says? Is his wrath against men and their unrighteousness because they don't know? No, it's because who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's why when someone comes to me and says, if God is really needs to give me evidence, I look at him and say, your unrighteousness will not allow you to seek that truth. Your desire for your own sin does not allow you to yield, and but rather suppress the truth. If it leads to God, you're not going to go there, isn't it? So even if you had evidence of God speaking to them, God shows up in such a way and reveals himself, they're suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. But he goes on and says, well, what can be known about God is already plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. The reason why we say fools despised wisdom and instruction is because it is foolish to look at the world around us, the very creation that's around us, and say, oh, that, that had to happen on accident. I look at every person in this room, and I look at every every one of us, even those, those of us who are related, brothers and sisters, and so forth, None of us, I, y'all are twins, but y'all don't look, y'all don't look anything alike. Y'all look related. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, it's like, you're not a Hannah with short hair or she's not a Aiden with long hair. Okay. You're very, you're different. Do you get what I'm saying? And every one of us, every one of us has the imprint and image bearer as an imprint, as an image bearer of God. There's no way I can look at any of us and say, you know what, that just happened by accident. Every one of us was knit together in our mother's womb. Every one of us, God created. And to look at that and say, show me evidence of God. That'd be very difficult. We're here. Yeah, we're here. But the thing is, not only the presence of people... What is it? I mean, for someone to doubt that. So we look at they suppress the truth. And we can look at all all the varieties of trees. We can look at how all the varieties of animals out in my back pasture. It could go beyond that and beyond that. But when we look at this as a whole, we presuppose these things, that God is real and his word is true. I love that passage of scripture because it goes on before I get finished. It says, they, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to the base mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all, all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. It goes on, verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give the approval to those who practice them. 
So when we, when we speak to others and when we talk about what we believe, the first thing is no matter what we do, no matter where we come from, our worldview is based upon this fact. That God's word is real. God is real and his word is true. Fix this, guys. Also, we kind of dropped off there for a second. Let's go to the last point, and then we'll be done today. I know it's going a little longer. We started a little late today. Last thing, Christian Reconstructionism holds to theonomic ethics. Theonomic means theos means God, nomos means law, God's law. Ethics based upon theonomic ethics. Okay. People get upset pretty quick when we start talking about theonomy in regards to ethics. And the reason why is they're automatically opposed to any form of theocracy. That means God rule. Okay? But every government under heaven is a theocracy of some sort. There is no neutrality when it comes to the government of men. One form of theocracy will always try to rule. So it's either going to be, the rule, be to be ruled by and obedience to God's law word or to the God of humanism, or statism, or some other ism or idea of man. It will always be some form of theocracy. And so when we look at this, Christian Reconstructionism holds to a theonomic, a God's law, an ethic built upon God's law. God's law word, on A, applies to every area of life. God's law word applies to every area of life. And this is one of the things that I, if I have an opportunity, I, if I have one of the aspects, if I had an opportunity to preach anywhere, teach anywhere, is to remind, remind that God's word applies to every area of life. And what we find is that so often the teaching is not such in other churches. And we'll talk about that just as we close in a moment. Now pay attention as we finish up. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, the kids in Christ Jesus may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is breathed, the, the, the scripture is breathed out by God, and it's useful for every aspect of life. So that means when we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about science, we're talking about language, we're talking about any other thing, God's Word is useful for that, but it's also useful for our work ethic. It also has to do with how we treat others. It's, it has to do with how we use our money. It has to do with how we invest our money. It has to do with every aspect of life is built upon the law Word of God and it applies to every area of life. In fact, in Psalm 119, 9-6, and then 105-112, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. 
With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may, might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare them all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 105. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I want you to understand that this aspect of what we're talking about here is the Word of God, the precepts of the teachings and the application of God's Word to every aspect of life. Those are not just useful when we come to church or gather as His church. Those are not just useful on Sundays. Those are not just useful as, as, a, as a member of a family. Those are useful in every aspect of life. When he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. We say that for a reason, that we use his word to guide us into all things, into all truth at all times. When we look at this, I want us to think about this a little further. He goes on, he says, I have sworn an oath. I have sworn an oath. Trying to get this to work, guys. I've sworn an oath and, and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Give me life, Lord, according to your word. I accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. The very core of our being, the very core of our purpose is to find ourselves applying God's word to everything, every day, in every way. Y'all remember what? Y'all remember what uh, the greatest commandment is? What is the greatest commandment in Scripture? To what? To love. To love whom? Love? No, that's not the greatest. That's the second. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Truthfully, there are a lot of people who love their neighbors more than they love God. There are people who say they love their neighbors, but they love themselves more than they love God. He said, love, your, love the Lord your God with all that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. And First John tells us that everyone who believes that Jesus is a Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him which tells us we love God and we love our neighbor. But by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and we obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What we must understand is that the law word of God applies to every aspect and every area of life. As individuals, 
in your family, in the church, and in the realm of the state or civil magistrate. In all areas, the Word of God applies. The Word of God not only informs us regarding these areas, but it also gives us commands as how do we how these areas are to function under God. The penalties for not doing so and the judgment that is to come upon the individuals and nations that don't uphold His law word. What we see regarding most Christians and churches today is that we have bought that humanistic lie that our religious life and beliefs are separate from our secular life and vocation. What that means is, for some people, they for whatever reason they believe we bought they bought a lie that their their religious life is separate from everything else they do. I don't know how we can do anything apart from God's word informing us. On how to do it. But there's no such thing described or prescribed in Scripture, but rather examples of those who refuse to divorce themselves in devotion to the one and only true God. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What did they do? Did they bow did the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down and worship the image of gold and the statue was set up? No, they said, I would rather die. Right? When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were first taken into slavery into this time and this king, they tried to give them uh, the king's meat and drink, that what was on his table, and they said, "No, we'll only drink, eat vegetables, and drink water." That's not because God calls us to be vegetarians. What they were saying is, "I will not, I will not defile myself with those things that are devoted to paganism." And they didn't. They ate what? They ate what? They they set themselves apart. And so what I'm, I'm what I'm saying is, they refuse to divorce themselves from the things of God. Think about Joseph. Although his brothers sold him into slavery, and then as he was he was in the house and he was working himself up in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife lied and said he tried to do something and he didn't. He got in, he, he was put into jail, and then he went to jail for a period of time. And while he was in jail, jail he kept continued what to serve the Lord, to honor God, and all that he was doing. And at the end of those things, because he refused refused to divorce his life or change, to keep his, his religious life from his public life, he didn't, ref, he didn't do that. What did he do? He became the second greatest in command. And he honors God and saves his own family because of it. I want us to think about those people who divorce themselves from their divorce God and his precepts and his word from the rest of life. Those who do such a thing have brought this weakness and impotence to American Christianity. And the God who we proclaim is Lord. If God and his word don't impact every area of life, then we have no moral compass or ethic for anything in life. Therefore, we have an everything-goes mentality. And that's how we've gotten to the place where we are today in our country. So when when people around us and some Christians don't look at a, that we have an optimistic view or we don't have a view in eschatology of victory and hope, what I want to point to them is the reason why we look at around us and we see the things that are there, it's because of Christians not applying God's word to all of life. When you see bad things going on, it's because no one has a moral compass that drives them to the Word of God and that says you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not do these things. Because God is holy and we are here to serve Him and honor Him in all things. 
So that means when someone commits a crime and they're let go or their sentence is less than should be, what the thing is, is they're not honoring God as holy and what God has said directly. So if someone murders, they should be put to death. When someone rapes, or, or they, should be, they should be put to death. When, it's, when we're talking about these aspects, and these are, we, we follow God's word because we don't honor God as holy and set apart in all aspects of life. As Christians, people don't do that. And because of that, we see whether it be police or the civil magistrate, judges, and beyond. So this message of the gospel, the message of the gospel is this, that God is more um, it's more the message of the gospel is more than what we're talking about here today. Uh, we're talking about uh, when we talk about when we look at society and see the external product of the internal church. We have bought the lie that God is mighty enough to save our souls from inside the walls of the church building, but He's not powerful enough to transform this world. And that that lie, that lie is not the gospel. The gospel, the gospel of the living God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is what is one of victory that transforms and changes. And so we have a comprehensive worldview. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. Why did Jesus come? What was prophesied in Jesus coming? And how does that have to do with salvation? How does it do with, how, what does it have to do with us as a whole? Would y'all pray with me and then we'll, as we close? Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for those who've been able to join us and Lord, those who've been able to as well. But Lord God, first and foremost, I just want to thank you for the work that you have done. And Lord God, that despite us, that Lord God, that you have you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And Lord God, you have purpose for us to be your people. And Lord, as your people, you have called us to a great, great calling, a mighty calling. And Lord, I pray that we will, as your people, that we will continue. Lord God, not to just to follow blindly others, but Lord God, that we will uh, be used mightily Lord, not only as your church as we gather but as individuals in our families that we got in our vocations and beyond as we call others to the standard of your word Lord God and as we are following it ourselves Father God move mightily in and through us and through those who who uh, will benefit from this today and Lord God I pray these things in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.